of ones. Hey yo, it's me, it's me, it's Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you with episode, get this, episode 40, 40 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network and Another week, another instance, um, although this one I nipped in the bud as quickly as possible. I uh, started recording, got through the opening wrap, uh, wanted to pause for a moment to check to make sure everything was working, and sure enough, I went back to check, and I was having this issue that I have occasionally with my microphone due to the fact I believe that it gets knocked over and dropped on the ground so many times by either cats or children that... Um, Every now and again, when I plug it in and begin recording, there is a staticky sound in the background that essentially ruins the audio. It's not like a little minor thing. It's horrendous. Um, but I noticed as I was recording, um, when I wasn't speaking, it wasn't just a flat line of silence. There was a little jagged edge all the way. So I was like, you know, I better check this. Check it, I did. And sure enough, the static was there. I believe the static, the static is gone. I'm actually going to pause one moment to both ensure that the static is gone, and to put a salmon filet in the oven. I'll be back momentarily. And just like that, through the magic of podcasting, uh, I have quality checked that there is, in fact, not a staticky sound in the background. And, well, my salmon filet is in the oven. The, the issue is I thought I was preheating the oven and waiting to put it in, but I somehow absentmindedly had already put said salmon filet in the oven and I have no idea when I actually put it in, so I'm going to have to wing it here and hope I don't under or over cook this filet. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I mean, we are a food podcast, but that's not particularly interesting food talk. I was, um, on my initial attempt at the opening wrap for this episode 40, um, talking about the number 40, talking about how it's probably not a particularly significant number in the life of a podcast, but it's a relatively significant number in the life of a human being. And I was talking about how I honestly have no recollection of turning 40. I have a recollection of being aware that I'm now in my 40s. And every now and again, when I realize I'm already 44, it's kind of weird because like, I feel like I just turned 40, but I also don't remember turning 40. Um, I had done a little bit of uh, research um, on the, my previous take of the opening for this episode, and I came to find out that I, in fact, as I suspected, turned 40 in the year 2016. In the year 2016, uh, it was a very hazy time period in the sensational household uh, because it was a time period where my wife, Ms. Sensational, was commuting an hour to and from work every day, and I was working full-time, Myself at a job outside the home. The job was actually inside the home. It was Zoom before Zoom was cool, but I was working full-time at something other than my preferred career of homemaking. It was a time period when our home life balance was beyond out of whack, and so it's hard to really remember much. And I also realized it was 
the year, um, uh, the beginning of Mr. Trump's uh, glorious years um, in uh, uh, office as president of the United States. So it's just kind of a strange time period, and I guess some, somewhere along those lines, I turned 40, and I don't really remember it, because I was too busy being fixated on writing marketing materials for a horrendous uh, half-con coding school. But we can talk about that another time. We're actually going to talk about work today. Um, Jobs I have had over the course of my life has been uh, a topic I've intended to visit at some point on the show, and today marks the beginning of that visitation. Uh, Before we get there, I guess I'll just talk about something... um, that I came upon while pulling weeds in the front yard this morning. Um, We rent a very unfortunate home currently as we're waiting to move into the new home that we're purchasing that doesn't exist yet. A home with a uh, great location. I I probably talked about this before on the the show, but it is just a moldering, falling apart, uh, just palace of deferred maintenance, and we don't own the place, so we can't really uh, do anything about it other than just deal and get the landlord to fix the stuff that's just uh, life or death. But anyway, this this uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant boomer landlord um, decided to put in a rock garden um, for the uh, front yard of the house. So in theory, I guess it's it's not even low maintenance. It should be no maintenance. But he, of course, put it in as cheaply and uh, uh, incompetently as humanly possible because he seems to be of the school of, first of all, paying as little as possible in any instance that he's wor- working on the house. But it's not just paying as little as possible. It's the why pay $500 to do, to do the job right today when I can pay $200 now and then pay another $200 after it fails and another $200 after that to take care of damage from when it failed. So anyway, the rock garden was put in not particularly well, and so there's this horrendous network of weeds under the rocks that comes up. And because it's all rocky, it's very hard to maintain the weeds. Um, and because it's a rental, I don't really feel like maintaining the weeds, but then I feel bad because all the other homeowner neighbors around here have these like nicely, immaculately maintained yards. I mean, they all hire gardeners too, which I would do, but I feel bad hiring someone to like, can you figure out a way to get these weeds out from between all these rocks? And it's, just, it's very strange. So anyway, at a certain point, I don't want to get, uh, um, you know, turned in to the authorities for, for having an, having an unmaintained yard. So doing a little bit of weeding, but it's like, it's the most Sisyphusian task. Um, There's really no point to it. You know, I can spend an hour a day every day and I don't really get anywhere, but I was out there anyway. So I was listening to uh, a podcast when I was out there. I was listening to the New York Times Daily podcast. Yes, the failing New York Times where they uh, fabricate stories, make up stories. Um, So I was listening to this fabricated story um, about, it was interesting because it was about how, um, Apple and Facebook, the two tech companies, Apple and Facebook, uh, are kind of doing a wrestling angle with one another. The old, uh, mega powers explode, um, template a little bit. I guess mega powers was Hulk Hogan kind of a mentor to Savage. I mean, just in, in, in WWF timeline, Hogan was around first, um, but I'm sure there's a better example of a wrestling storyline where it was more of a full-on... Oh! Uh, Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco. There you go. 
They're doing the Facebook and Apple are doing Bruno San, San Martino and Larry Zabisco, um, in a sense. Um, because I guess what happened was at one point there was a close relationship between the two corporations. Uh, uh, when Steve Jobs was still alive, um, he kind of mentored Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and, and the companies had a symbiotic relationship because Apple was pioneering in the smartphone realm and Facebook was creating content for smartphones to interface with. But somewhere along the lines, um, there's become a rift between the two companies. And so um, Apple has kind of tried to uh, baby face on uh, Facebook, cast themselves as the heroes and Facebook as the villains and be like, People of the world, iPhone users of the world, Facebook is trying to invade your privacy by uh, exploiting your data, selling your data, making it so you see ads based on things that you buy or things that you look at. We're the baby faces, so we're going to give you a new gimmick on your Apple uh, iPhone that will allow you to block Facebook from doing this. Uh, But then Facebook is trying to counteract... um, this and make it seem as if they are in fact being healed on by uh, uh, Apple, that Apple is actually the heel, the bad guy. And they're saying, look, we have all these small businesses that uh, use our platform for getting their ads to customers. We're just the, the little man trying to help the small business. Everyone loves a small business, right? So you're actually the heel because you're pr- uh, preying upon small businesses by making their ad targeting uh, void with all of these uh, Apple iPhone users. Um, but anyway, the, the, this was a fascinating story to me because it just it, it, it's very fascinating how it, it, keep in mind too, Apple's huge grave concern with quote unquote privacy only extends to Facebook. They have no problems with companies that they're actually doing deals with like Google and they have their own privacy so supposed if you want to really believe in privacy, which we'll talk about issues on their own phone and their own platforms. Uh, but it's, just, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch these companies um, just kind of do uh, selective measures to make themselves look like baby faces, to make their competitors look like heels, that anyone would actually buy that any of this is done out of altruism or, uh, you know, the goodness of their heart, which weirdly people do, um, I guess. It's very strange to me. Um, And then also it's just fascinating because the whole reason there's a rift between um, Apple and Facebook per this fake story in the failing New York Times um, was because... uh, while these companies were able to exist symbiotically for a while, Silicon Valley is reflective of our, our kind of national business climate where there's no such thing as multiple entities having a piece of the pie. I either have the entire pie or I have nothing. Go big or go home, as they say, which is just so bizarre to me because who could possibly, possibly maintain that level of motivation to have it all? Like, you know, I get a piece of pie, I'm good, bro. Like, do I really need to kill the person next to me to take theirs? But that's just, for whatever reason, people in the business world, that's just, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, given over to that. Um, no offense if you're out there in the business world. I get it. I get that's the thing. But I, I, it's just something that's just so alien to me I, that I, cannot, I personally cannot understand. And then finally, the last point on this is it made me think about something interesting to myself. So I tend to be uh, veer pretty heavily towards OCD tendencies, and I don't mean that in the pop culture way. I mean, I literally have psychological tendencies having to do with obsession and compulsion that have taken, you know, take hours out of my day and probably taken years away from my life. Um, issues that I attempt to, to wrestle with to, to get into control. Um, in addition, I have often tended to struggle with feelings of, I guess you say paranoia, um, 
this, this belief that I'm somehow being surveilled or like there's this I, sort of unseen judging force that I'm going to get in trouble with and all stemming, stemming back to just childhood experiences and different life experiences. But anyway, I, I bring this to you because I find it interesting. Whenever I hear these news stories about this idea of privacy um, and like online privacy and, uh, and such, I feel like the, this should be a trigger to me because it's the kind of thing that I could get really obsessive about. It's the kind of thing I could get very paranoid about. But instead, the idea of online privacy concerns really falls on deaf ears with me. Um, I think essentially because we're not talking about, you know, as, as scary as online privacy concerns sound, we're not dealing with, you know, people being snatched off the street for expressing some view online or, or anything like that. We're, we're talking about people seeing advertisements tailored on other advertisements and other products that they looked at advertisements that only they are seeing. It's not like there's some community broadcast, Hey, check out what the ads this guy's seeing. Um, so I find it very hard to get exercised about that. In fact, I would rather see ads based on things that I'm interested in or would possibly like to buy than ads not pertaining to my online commerce activity whatsoever, because most online activity too is commerce of a sort. So what is there to be? I mean, I'm not involved in human trafficking. I'm not involved in any other kind of illegal enterprises. I guess somewhere out there. Advertising entities have anonymized information that I like wrestling and video games. I, I just I can't get I, I can't get moved by by that. But however, however, I did click off on the little gimmick now on the iPhone allowing uh, Facebook to track me across apps. Not out of any privacy concerns, but just because that Zuckerberg guy is super annoying. So not because I feel like uh, Apple or the baby face in this instance. That they're all heels. So any any little irritant I can be to a heel, I guess I get some some amusement out of that. But then again, maybe there if there really is something to to the Facebook baby face claims of. Uh, non-tracking ads affecting small business uh, owners. I guess maybe I should feel kind of bad about that, but I don't know. For now, for now, I'm going to leave it switched off. And again, I just, I find it interesting that I, I guess what it is for me, because I've had so many struggles with OCD and paranoia, certain things become a bridge too far and I just have to give up on it. It's like with uh, COVID. I never once, um, and some of this was vindicated after the fact because it was revealed that it never was that big of a deal to begin with, but I never once went in on the fear of surfaces gimmick because, or fear of, of objects or items, you know, water, bleaching your groceries, whatnot. Because it's just like, you know, I'm going to miss a spot. And if I allow myself to succumb to this, I'm just going to get so obsessive about it that I'm not going to be able to live my life. So instead, when it gets to those kind of cases, I guess I just, I, I, I have to have to counteract the OCD, counteract the paranoia by just, by just going, balls to the wall! And uh, not having a care in the world, I guess. Who knows? Anyway, we are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with the first ever, first ever installment on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on this episode 40 of Jobs I've Had with Gino Vega. I'm looking back at, at, at places of employment, places I've worked at, stories that come from those places. We're going to be coming back with volume one of places I've worked, jobs I've had. Uh, this one's going to be about a place called Willy Bird Turkey in Santa Rosa, California, when we return on episode 40 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Get a haircut, get a real job, clean your act up and don't be a slob, get it together like your big brother Bob. 
Now we're going to take it back. But how far are we going to take it back? Way back. We are going back in time to, I believe, the year 1993 or 94. Um, It would have been my senior year of high school, which was the 93-94 school year. So somewhere thereabouts, and I don't remember the exact uh, time of year that it began. And I actually don't remember how long this time period was for. But what we're talking about here today, folks, was the first bonafide job I ever had. I think if I, if I think back further, I probably had, I know I had some volunteer jobs predating this job, and I had some odd jobs here and there. But this job that we're going to talk about today was the first full-blown paid gig that Mr. Sensational Gino Vega ever had. I would have been 17 at the time. Um, you know, actually, I, I'm, I'm realizing now, based on certain other local events that were going on around the time that uh, I had this job, it was definitely in 1993. Um, we won't get into it because it's kind of a grim story that was going on locally. I don't want to bring the tenor down, but it was something that happened in 1993. It was happening while I was uh, working at this first job because I knew someone related to the incident. But anyway, en- enough cryptic uh, time stamping. 1993, the year it was. I was a senior in high school, 17 years old, um, for uh, Easter egg for Albert Adame. This was in the earliest, early days of the Invalids Band. Um, but anyhow, I got this job working at kind of a divey restaurant slash bar and a divey auto row kind of uh, part of town in Santa Rosa, California, a restaurant called uh, Willie Bird's Restaurant. And Willie Bird's was um, adjacent to a family, the Benedetti family in uh, Santa Rosa, California, Sonoma County, um, that operated some sort of turkey farming business. So, they sold high quality turkeys to grocery retail outlets, but then they had the, this family restaurant slash bar as well. And I don't know everything about uh, the uh, ownership structure and the family, what's et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I'm, there's other Santa Rosa historians I'm sure have that all dialed in. That's not really the point of the story. The point is I got a job at the Willie Bird's restaurant and bar. And I got this job. Uh, the job was as a busboy. I got the job because a friend of mine had the job before me. He got the job because his older sister had been a waitress at the uh, restaurant and bar throughout her high school years and um, was thought of fondly there. She'd gotten her brother the job. Her brother was now moving on to a different job, and he handed off the job to me. So I began my stint at... Willie Bird Turkey. God, I wish I could remember how long it was for, because in my mind, it feels like it had to have been for like, you know, uh, a year. But the way sometimes those memories go from high school, it could have also been a month. Um, But in any case, I started working at this job and I swear to God, I think it was just, it was maybe one day a week. It might, might've been two days a week. I think it was just one day a week. I think it was like Saturday mornings. Saturday mornings for like three hours. But at the time, going into it, I didn't think it was a big deal because I I, it, I was so just naive and alien to the idea of work that it didn't occur to me that, oh, you were going to have to show up to this place and be here 
for a specific amount of time every time, you know, at the same time every week. That hadn't really entered my radar yet until I started the job. And then when I did start the job, it was like, my God, man, I have to be here for three hours, one day a week, every week. How am I going to survive? And so I'll tell you the way I survived before we get into more specifics of the job, uh, just as far as time management, as far as how I could handle this grueling schedule, um, this job also coincided with kind of the beginning of my social life, my teenage social life. Uh, like I had mentioned to Albert out there, I just started playing in a, in a punk rock band that was starting to play shows on weekends. I was starting to go see, not starting to, I was in the, the prime of going to see a lot of other bands play. I had a group of friends I was hanging out with. I was meeting new people, hanging out with them. And uh, it just felt like when I was stuck at this job, it was keeping me from getting to get my, the jump on all that stuff for Saturday, you know, cause it's really hard from like 10 to 10 to one or whatever, not to be able to be hanging with the homies. So the way I would get through a shift is I realized our band had about an hour's worth of material. If you took every song we had at that time. And so I thought my shift here is really just playing all the songs that our band has three times in a row. So as soon as I would arrive at Willie Bird's restaurant and clock in, I would start in my head performing all 60 minutes of the Invalid's entire song catalog. And when I got done doing that three times, the shift was over. Is that brilliant or what? Anyway, let's talk about the job itself. There was probably not a single other person in the world less suited to the job as a busboy at Willie Bird's restaurant than Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. Uh, the, uh, this was just kind of a, a greasy diner, a bar. And again, I was extremely naive at the time. I didn't understand like really bars. I'd never been to a bar. Um, I maybe had like just started experimenting with drinking and smoking myself. My parents weren't like bar people. So I just didn't really have a big point of reference. And I always thought of Willie Bird's as kind of respectable place because it's a place that kind of got lauded in the Santa Rosa community because it was like a, a nostalgic institution. So I always thought it was like this kind of clean cut, squeaky clean, you know, do-gooder place because it's like, oh, everyone loves Willie Bird's. But it was pretty, it was kind of dark in there. Like it was, it was dark, it was hard to see, but it was also kind of like, you know, you're, you're, in there at 10 in the morning and these old guys are like six Bloody Marys deep and you're cleaning up ashtrays and there's drunk guys everywhere. And it was seedy. It was kind of a seedy scene, especially for a naive 17 year old. Um, so, uh, seedy, um, seedy yet locally renowned bar and restaurant. Um, very busy in the mornings because it's mainly, it's like a, the place where you go to, to have, you know, Bloody Mary type breakfast or lunch. You know, if you're, if you're day drinking, uh, and you want to get your, your diner grub on Willie birds was the, was the jam. Willie birds was the place to go. Um, so the, the majority of the rest of the kitchen staff, okay. So you had the waitresses were all older women, um, minus my friend's sister who had worked there. She was like one of like, I think maybe two young women and she wasn't working there when I was there. She would occasionally on break from college, come back and do a shift or two. But for the most part, waitresses were all old ladies. There was a manager who was an old lady, older lady. Um, I mean, I was 17, so everyone seemed like a hundred years old to me. Um, there was a bartender on duty at any given time who was a guy probably in his forties or fifties, two different ones. Or no, maybe there were three different ones. I don't know. Um, but then the, Everyone in back of house, like the the kitchen staff, and then the other bus boys, 
we're all um, like people of Spanish speaking origin. I have no idea what country they're from. They're the kind of people that in 1993, we would have blanketly referred to as quote unquote Mexicans. <laughs> that was just the, the vernacular of the day. Obviously, maybe some of these people were from Mexico. Probably some others weren't. Um, a, a lesson to be learned in this, though, is um, I didn't work a lot of food service, but I cannot imagine, cannot imagine Willie Birds was an outlier in this uh, case. And I've, I've since, you know, I've seen documentaries about this and, and so on and so forth. Um, the food service industry, the restaurant industry, the people that make that industry happen behind the scenes are predominantly immigrants from Spanish-speaking countries. And so, uh, interestingly, you know, we, all, we hear, oh, so much about the immigrants took our jobs. I was actually in a case where I was probably taking an immigrant's job. I had no business being there. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was working shoulder to shoulder with all these other guys that were just like used to hard work all the time, working their tail off to make a couple of bucks. And here I was, this like dopey, half white, half Chinese kid from the suburbs who I don't even know why I had this job. My parents decided I need, needed one. I didn't really need the money. Uh, so yeah, I, I was completely out of my depth, had no business being there, didn't understand because then, then on the other hand, like the clientele and like the, the most of the waitresses that worked there and that's the family that owned the business. It was real kind of rednecky, uh, blue collar, um, scene, which was just not my scene at all. Not something I had any understanding of fam or familiarity with. So I was just culturally out of my depth on, on every angle, bumbling in there, um, not realizing that the whole primary function of this place was for old redneck guys to get drunk before noon. Um, and on top of all that, I'm not a particularly physically apt, um, fast moving, agile individual. So I was horrible as a busboy. Like I, I'm very bad with physical spatial logistics. So it would take me, I, I wasn't even trying to be slow. I didn't realize being I was being slow, but I would just take forever to clear tables and just infuriate the waitresses and um, we had these pitchers of water I had to care, uh, bring out and fill people's water. So this big pitcher, unwieldy pitcher, I thought, I'll stabilize the pitcher by hooking my thumb over, over the lip of the pitcher by the handle. Because again, clueless, clueless youth walking into this place. And I saw this table once when I was doing this, and I thought it was really clever because I'd figured out a way to stabilize the pitcher while I attempted to lug it out to the tables. I saw this table of old ladies just glaring at me, and they were calling over one of the waitresses, and I had to be pulled aside and counseled, um, you're putting your thumb in the pitcher and the old ladies that are dining here are getting very agitated about it because they don't want your germs. So you need to please stop doing that. Mortifying, just mortifying. Um, uh, there was also this whole scene there. And again, stupid, naive, young. In any workplace, obviously there's politics, but particularly when you have a bunch of old chain smoking waitress ladies there's going to be uber politics. So they all had different dramas with each other and different different political standings in the restaurant. We're all sniping at each other. And then I was kind of this pawn bouncing around between them. But the, the awkward thing is, if I wanted to get tips, I had to walk up to each of the waitresses on duty before I left each day that I worked there and be like, you know, um, bye, Marge. Uh, bye, you know, uh, Henrietta. And uh, as I awkwardly said bye, they would tip me out from their tips. But then sometimes they would just stand there. And so it was like, did I do something wrong by, by saying bye to them, by thinking I was going to get a tip? Are they icing me out because I suck so bad? Uh, 
But then like other ones would like tip me really large and other ones wouldn't tip me at all. And some of that was the machinations of them fighting amongst each other. It was, it was very overwhelming. It was akin to on, um, I think it was the very last episode of the trying to get vaccinated show. I see robots talked about lasting at um, a McDonald's for one day. This was very much that situation for me, but protracted out over probably a couple months. Like I felt like such an alien at this place. And what was so awkward too, is I felt like, because I was only there for like three hours, one day a week, um, people like, did, like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? It was, I, it was like, uh, it was almost kind of like I was just, the, I remember in the, what was the movie Office Space where the guy had gotten fired years before and no one remembered and he was just kind of there still, even though he didn't really work there. That was my feeling working at Willie Birds. Um, bad fit. Never should have been there. Um, oh, God, another brutally awkward time is... Uh, so I was a 1990s alternative youth uh, working, uh, taking journalism class at high school and on the school paper. I was a weirdo. And so uh, um, at the time, this was back in the, back in the good old days when um, uh, someone being gay, this was like a huge controversy. You know, the people were actually, were, I mean, parts of the world, I'm sure this is still true. But I mean, right here in the US of A, we still had people getting like uh, uh, drugged to death for, for uh being gay. It wasn't all, uh, you know, uh, fun and games like the, the youth of today experience. It was like life and death stuff, life and death discrimination. Um, so anyway, it, it was in the early days of this being a topic that people were trying to wrap their head around and, and come to terms with. And so on the school newspaper, uh, the editor who was kind of like more of a button up, you know, straight laced guy was like, hey, Gino Vega, you're weird. You probably know someone that's gay, right? write an article about a gay person. So I was like, sure thing, editor-in-chief. Um, fact of the matter is I knew no gay people at the time. Actually, in retrospect, I did, but I didn't know that at the time. So yours truly had a brilliant idea to, <laughs> a la the failing New York Times, to fabricate a story. I, I did an imaginary interview with an imaginary gay student who was anonymous. See, the, the, those shady journalists are always claiming anonymous sources. So claimed an anonymous source, wrote this fake article, Ended up getting like this young journalism award for it. And I think maybe some of it got published in the local paper or something like that. But you want to talk about worlds colliding. I show up to work at Willie Bird's restaurant, which I cannot imagine. I mean, I could be, could be way off, could be being totally horridly generalizing. Didn't get the sense that it was like the, the, the gayest friendly environment in 1993 at Willie Bird's. And so... I show up to uh, work, and the manager lady was like, Scott, I saw your article in the paper. Nice job. And it was so awkward, because like, is she clowning me? Is she threatening me? Did she really think I did a nice job? I don't know. Does she know it was fabricated? To this day, that, that's, that, that fabricated article is like one of my greatest... Nah, I'm not even gonna say, I was going to say one of my greatest accomplishments and greatest shames. I don't feel any shame about it at all, because I never claimed to be a journalist. You know, I was, I was just, I was working the system. I was, a, I'm a worker, I'm not a journalist. I'm a worker. And so I, I feel like I, uh, pulled a successful work in that case. And just kind of, I, I, I got a little pleasure seeing people who thought it was a shoot, accepting my work as a shoot, even though I never thought it was a shoot. It was all work to me. I don't still have to do a glossary for those wrestling terms at this point, right? Work is, is fake. Workers are like carnies, step right up. I've got, I've got this uh, snake oil to sell you. Shoot is real. Anyway, back to Willie Birds. Uh, I'm trying to think of some, just some other actual discrete stories that took place there that are of note or of interest. Um, 
One day I was working and there was this father and son, kind of truckery looking guys, you know, think Eric Purcell. Uh, but uh, no, but these, just these kind of rednecky guys were sitting at the bar drinking and it was a father and son. The next thing I know, the restaurant's mobbed by all these dudes who themselves are kind of rednecky looking, but they've all got like um, U.S. Marshal bulletproof vests on because they were undercover. They all come in and they have their guns at the father and son on the bar and they arrest the father and son. They bring them out of the bar. And I was just like mind blown at the time. Uh, Willie Bird's restaurant existed in a continuum in Santa Rosa, which back in the day was kind of the stomping grounds of when uh, Icy Robots has talked about the Raiders, the Oakland Raiders running wild in Santa Rosa. This was one of the areas that they ran wild in. By the time I was working at Willie Bird's in 1993, it had already sort of that world kind of started to disappear a bit, but there was still way more traces of it there than there are now in Santa Rosa. So in any case, these guys were marched out and then about 15 minutes later, they come back in and sit back down at the bar and continue drinking their drinks. And it turns out there was a wanted father and son across the street at a bar, a biker bar that I think was called the Ponderosa. Um, uh, when I first started at Willie Bird's like a day or so before a dead body had been found in the trunk of a car in the parking lot of the Ponderosa. Rough place. Anyway, Feds got it wrong. Father and son they were looking for who fit the same description were across the street of the Ponderosa. They got the wrong guys. The Willie Bird's father and son were in the clear and they were back in there drinking a few minutes later. Um, everyone was, was, was happy and on with their lives. I'm trying to think of any other moments or vignettes that stand out from my time at Willie Bird's. Uh, the only time I've ever witnessed a bonafide dine and dash in my entire life, uh, took place one, one Saturday morning when I was working there. Um, not really much to tell this story. It was just, it was just weird. Cause like all of a sudden there's all this commotion and I heard like, heard the bartender yelling, Hey, Hey, and running outside. And it was, uh, someone who'd been eating at the bar had dined and then dashed on the bill. So this, this, uh, notion of dining and dashing, which is it was it feels out there in the popular imagination a lot. If you've ever played the Yakuza video games, it's a reoccurring, reoccurring sub story in uh, that entire franchise. Is the idea of people dining and dashing, and you helping out poor restaurateurs by helping chase down the dasher. Um, only time I've ever actually known of it myself to happen was this one Saturday, early uh, afternoon, late morning in 1993 at Willie Bird Turkey in Santa Rosa, California. What else? Um, one visual that just seared into my brain from working at Willie Birds is at any given time, there was this little circular table in the kitchen and uh, waitresses on their break uh, would go, a lone waitress would go sit there uh, one at a time on their break and smoke a cigarette. And at any given time when you walked past that uh, little circular table back in the kitchen, there'd be an ashtray and there'd be like a Virginia Slim type cigarette with like lipstick all over the filter, just sitting left forgotten in the ashtray because they got called away or they had to go do something. And just this like snaking trail of ash, just this long ghost trail of ash as the cigarette consumed itself after being left unsmoked in the ashtray, if that makes any sense. I don't know why. That's a, a stuck in my mind to this day. Uh, one other little funny story. One day I was uh, in there bussing and this fellow showed up in a blue baseball hat uh, and he started, Anglo guy started speaking to me in Spanish. And I was like, huh? He's like, oh, you speak English? Okay, well, come over here. I need your help. And it was one of the actual Benedetti family members, I believe. And, uh, he had to go cater, um, an event. 
at this place that's been a million different clubs in the Railroad Square area of Santa Rosa. It's been the Daily Planet, I think, when I first moved to Santa Rosa. It's been the Fun House. I think it's been the Last Day Saloon. I think it was the Fun House at this time, maybe. Um, anyway, they were catering some event there, and I got uh, got carried along as an extra catering muscle to help carry in the sterno ovens and all that stuff. And actually, I think I did a little bit better job of that than uh, than than busboying. Maybe catering was my was my calling that I never really fully explored. But that was kind of awkward and funny. Um, again, just no idea what I'm doing here. I'm I'm riding along with this local luminary who owns the business I work at, and I don't even really understand who he is or fathom what's going on. And I'm helping cater an event. It was the 90s. What can, what can I say? Um, one funny kind of retrospective memory about my time at Bluebirds, I don't really remember spending much, if any, of the money that I made there. I think I put it all directly into an exchange bank savings account, checking account. Um, because I think the idea was maybe like I was, I was doing this job for a specific purpose. My parents had me doing this job because I was saving up money for something. Um, so the money just kind of just accrued in this account till I had this whopping, I think it was $300, which to me, I felt like, gosh, I'm, I've got $300. I'm probably never going to have to work again for the rest of my life. So the way my time ultimately ended at Willie Bird was, um, over the course of my employment there, the course of that 1993 to 94 school year, I got more and more punk rock. I got more and more edgy nineties. My band started to take off for what it was. Um, being a weirdo started to become cool because again, it was the nineties. So I went from being this kind of dork to being this cool dude. And, um, I was uh, getting more and more, um, aggravated with the Willie Bird's job, with the whole like feeling like I didn't know what I was doing, not getting tipped out by some of the waitresses. And it got to the point, like, like I said, how it was sort of a, a several month version of Ice Robots one day at McDonald's. I just kind of, I was like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't even know if these people know who I am or they want me here or know what I'm doing here. I'm just not coming back. So I think, because I think one day this, uh, one of the waitresses didn't tip me out and I was just feeling like super weirded out by it. And because they would never say anything too, they wouldn't be like, Hey, if you could do this, I'd feel better about giving you some tips. It would just be the silent treatment. So, um, in any case, this correlated perfectly. That's just what it was. I hadn't a hundred percent decided I wasn't coming back, but I left pissed off on a Saturday. Then that week, um, at school, I was hanging out with a group of friends on a weeknight and we were kind of roaming, roaming the, the, roaming the streets of Santa Rosa and we went back to my mom's house, my parents' house, where I lived. And it was me and a couple of my usual male friends from school and one female friend of mine named Melissa. Uh, totally platonic friend, but she was hanging out with us. She lived way out in the hinterlands. And so, and her mom, she was just, had kind of like the... Her mom never knew where she was, and so she just kind of free range of was free to roam the world as she pleased. Um, so we thought it would be cool. Oh, since we're already hanging out, you can just spend the night at my house, and you can come hang out with us at school tomorrow. So, because she was friends with a lot of our friends at our high school, so she thought it'd be fun to see everyone and see what it was like at our school for a day. So uh, we're all hanging out in my room, and my mom finally comes in. It's like pretty late at night, and she's like, "Well, what's going on?" I was like, "Well, everyone's spending the night." And she's like, you can't have a girl spend the night in your room. And I was just like, well, fine then. I'm out of here. And we all spun around, turned on our heels and left. 
and I quote unquote ran away from home, walked um, kind of out into where Icy, Icy Robot's neck of the woods into Rincon Valley of uh, the Rincon Valley area of Santa Rosa because my parents lived kind of on the outskirts of that anyway. Walked deep into Rincon Valley, had an older friend that had his own apartment. We showed up unannounced at his apartment and informed that poor soul that we were staying there. I, I learned years later that, that poor soul actually hates me because I would just take advantage of his home. I thought I could just show up and stay there because, again, 17, 18, total moron, didn't get it that this guy is actually trying to live his life in his own apartment that he's paying for. But I just thought, oh, it's cool. He's got a party pad. We can all hang out there. So um, we all crashed out there, and I think I stayed away from my parents' house for like a week and pretty much stopped going to school for a week. And part of that going AWOL for a week was just never going back to Willie Birds. Never going back. Didn't call. Didn't write. Just never showed up again. Um, and never really had much dealings with them again. One time awkwardly, sometime later when I was working at UA6 with IC Robots, the manager lady of Willie Birds came and I was working at the box office and I had to sell her her tickets and she just kind of like did the <laughs> kind of thing and went in. But... Um, yeah, in retrospect, bad fit for me, but probably a good life lesson about work, what work really is, what it's all about. Also very good, there's this idea that people live in their sociocultural bubbles and don't get to see other parts of the world. And at that time, I was not someone that would ever have any exposure to sort of rednecky restaurant bar, Bloody Mary breakfast culture. And so it was good for me to be around just people that were so different than anything I knew. And just giving me into, into window that to, to each their own, everyone has their own background, everyone has their own tip, and so long as they're not being abusive to other people, it's all good in the hood. Um, I Retrospective apologies to Willie Birds for being such a horrible employee for them, although again, it was three hours a week, so I don't think anyone even noticed. Um, and final postscript... Um, I was not, as much as everyone else in Santa Rosa loves and loved loved and loves Willie Bird, I was never really a fan just because I worked there and I couldn't really see it as a place that anyone could possibly enjoy going to. The last time I went there, which is the only time I went there post working there, was a few years back. I actually think it was the base the original bass player of the Invalids' 40th birthday, and me and him and some other friends all met at Willie Bird's for breakfast, and I had a Bloody Mary. Um, and after that, the um, uh, original family ownership, I think, sold it or whatever. They stopped operating the restaurant. I think the patriarch of the family uh, passed. Um, it reopened as, I think, The Bird with some new owners, but I don't think that that lasted very long. I don't know the story there. Although IC Robot says that I guess, I, I don't know if it's the original family's reopening a restaurant or if the bird owners are opening a restaurant, but that it is reopening in some form or fashion near where he lives in Rincon Valley. We'll have to ask him for updates as they come available. Folks, this episode went long. I hope you enjoyed this tale. I hope you enjoyed, this was kind of a mashup between jobs I've had and awkward, mortifying tales. It's all, I guess it's all, all part of the Vegaverse. Thanks for joining me. I will most likely be back next week with episode 41. In the meantime, it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, for the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network!